Hey everyone, it's Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Hope everyone's holidays have been going well. Before we get into the episode, just wanted to remind you of a few things. If you'd like to be entered to win a Truman Audio Answer equipped Shure SM7B, fully installed, ready to go, just like the one I'm talking on now, make sure to sign up for our mailing list. There's no purchase necessary. No spam. All you got to do is go to recordingloungepodcast.com slash sign up. You put in your name and your email and you're a part of the mailing list and you're entered to win. That's all you have to do. Okay. So if you are the winner, I will be contacting you via email first. Okay. I'm not going to announce it on the podcast first because I don't want to just throw out somebody's name and where they live on the podcast without actually talking to the person. And also I want to make sure that that person responds to the email and that they acknowledge that they won because I have to get their info to send it to them, right? So I'm not just going to announce it before knowing that the winner is actually confirmed and they respond. So check your email in the next week because if you are chosen, that's how I will be contacting you. In the meantime, make sure, this is your last chance, make sure to use coupon code RLCHRISTMAS at trumanaudio.com. That's T-R-U-M-A-N. A-U-D-I-O.com, and you can get your own answer preamp kit, or you can get it pre-installed, or you can schedule a time to send in your SM7 or SM7B to have Truman Audio modify it for you, okay? So you can use that 15% off code at checkout from now until January 1, okay? Trying to work out a little bit of stuff in the future with Truman. Hopefully, we can get some more discounts in the future. Uh, it's been really cool. We've seen a lot of interest. Um, I love them. I've, I've already installed them in two SM7s, and I don't see any reason why I would ever <laughs> want a normal SM7 anymore. It just makes them infinitely more flexible. I really believe in the product. I don't want to have advertisements or sponsors on this show for products I don't actually like or use or think are good, <laughs> you know? Uh, I, I want to support small businesses. I want to support companies that actually make products products that people like me use, people like you. Uh, so thanks again to Truman Audio for working with us on this cool promo period and hopefully some more in the future. So again, make sure, sign up for the mailing list, use the promo code at trumanaudio.com and let's get on to the episode. So on today's episode, we're talking about why, when, and how to hire an assistant. Now this topic is fresh in my mind because I just hired an assistant. So after doing a ton of research, many sleepless nights of reading and learning, lots of YouTube videos about, you know, managing assistants and how to hire an assistant and should I hire an assistant? How much should I pay them? You know, after many conversations with professionals, other audio engineers, as well as some real estate friends of mine, some PA friends of mine who are professional personal assistants, uh, some colleagues, friends, I felt armed with the knowledge to hire an assistant effectively. But even with all of that, I was still not sure what it was going to look like. And even right now, I'm still not totally sure because I just hired him, right? Uh, I sure didn't expect it to be as difficult as it was or as involved. We'll get into that a little bit later. But, you know, I wanted to make this episode to share my experience in this process. Many of you out there might be thinking, well, I can't afford an assistant, or even I don't need an assistant. I pretty much do what I need to do. Or, you know, I don't even know what I would have them do, right? Or I don't want somebody kind of in on my business that closely. Believe me, I was there too. I was there for a while. I debated this for a long time. But I finally decided it was time. 
So let me take you back a little bit and explain how I got here, what the thought process has been. And after that, we'll go into some advice for the job posting, for interviewing and selecting an assistant, as well as talking about what they can actually do for you to save you time and ultimately save you money. So let's go for it. Okay, so flashback to 2019, I was really, really close to hiring a part-time assistant to take care of things like editing drums, editing vocals, prepping sessions, doing cleanup work, or even engineering overdub sessions or simple sessions like that, right, that I just didn't want to mess with. The problem is that at this point, I was essentially looking for a clone of myself, right, somebody who could do exactly what I wanted to do but was not me and never faltered, right? (laughs) Of course, the issue I kept encountering is that to find somebody at my level who is as good as me, who does things exactly as I want them, especially doing like actual audio work, making real deal decisions, like producer type decisions for the client, I would basically need to pay them what I make, (laughs) right? Because on paper, they're basically another me. So, of course, making $0 profit isn't really sustainable. (laughs) You know, when the pandemic hit, I kind of ruled out the idea of having an assistant for a while. I was like, all right, there's just so much uncertainty financially, socially, health-wise. It just brought way too many variables into the mix. I just wasn't really sure. Also, just having another person around more often, it just didn't seem like a good idea during the pandemic. You know, clients are kind of all over the map in terms of their comfort. Uh, I'm a little bit more on the cautious side, but, you know, some clients are not quite as, they're not quite as worried about it. And But, like, some clients are very worried about it. Some clients are immune compromised. And having another person is, like, another complication, right? Another potential transmission, you know what I mean? So, anyway, it got put on the back burner, right? I tried to have an intern around for a little while to help with cleaning and things, but it was honestly just more trouble than it was worth. After some time passed, I finally started considering this idea seriously again, but this time I had a much better perspective. I had thought about it a lot over the course of 2020 and 2021, and, you know, even before that. What I kind of decided is that instead of trying to find a clone of me that would essentially deserve the same wage as me, or at least around there, instead I started thinking, what basic repetitive tasks do I do all the time that take up a lot of my time that I could delegate to somebody else and pay them a lower but still fair wage for? You know, here in the United States, minimum wage is $7.25, which to me is abysmally low. Even where I live in Oklahoma, where cost of living is quite low, 725 is still too low. So I decided that I would not hire anybody unless I could afford to pay them 15 bucks an hour at least. That would get me somebody who is a skilled worker. It's not just somebody who has zero experience whatsoever. I mean, somebody that does have some experience, some skill, but maybe they don't have a decade or 15 years of advanced audio experience, right? In fact, ideally, they only have a little bit of experience, but we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So with all of these details ironed out, I knew that I was ready to hire somebody. My goal was to hire somebody one or two days a week with the hope of advancing them to three days a week, like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Monday, Friday, Saturday, or Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, something like that. So they would be working between... 
20, 30 hours a week um, helping me with sessions, with the studio. We're going to get into the specifics a little bit more later, but uh, let's talk a little bit about why. Why to hire an assistant? On a recent episode of the podcast, we talked about the mindset differences between studio owners and producers and how many of us owner-operators will feel that sort of push and pull between those two mindsets. On today's episode, I felt it was fitting to bring this up again because it's part of the debate that sparked the assistant search to begin with, doing it all yourself versus delegating work to others. As owner-operators, there's a strange desire to kind of do everything ourselves. You know, it's like we're self-made, we do this ourselves, we're very DIY kind of people. Maybe it's pride. Maybe we don't even realize we're doing it at all. But I think for most of us, it starts out as a necessity. You know, early on, we can't afford to hire anybody. We barely are making money at all. We're trying to improve our skills. We're trying to learn as much as we can. We want to get better at everything, right? At least to some degree. We want to know how to do everything at least a little bit. But pretty quickly, you start to realize that that can be a lot, you know, <laughs> one of the things that my students and some of the people I've mentored over the years, so some, something we've laughed about is that like audio is like this endless ocean or like a network of underwater caves. And you just like you dive in and you're like, oh, man, there's so much stuff. This is so cool. And then you dive a little bit deeper and then you realize, oh, I, I was in a small cave. There's actually way more than I realize. And then you dive a little bit deeper and you're like, oh my gosh, this is like an entire ocean of caves that I, I thought, you know, this was so much simpler, so much smaller, but you realize every little bit of audio, you can go deeper. You can learn more. There's always something more to learn. And there's always like a branch off of the side of that about learning something else like electronics or acoustics or learning how to repair guitar amps or instruments. Like, it's all audio-related, but it's not exactly recording, but they're all, like I said, they're intertwined. It's like a network of caves. And so it starts to become just overwhelming how much stuff we need to know how to do. And, of course, after a number of years, most of us start to realize this stuff takes a lot of time. <laughs> and... And it doesn't necessarily get any faster. I mean, it does, but then you dive deeper and learn more, and then it takes longer. And then you expand your skill set, and then it takes longer. And then you get better at it, and it, you know, it's like this game of little tiny wins and losses in time. You know, what's funny is that most studio owners get this, most producers get this, but a lot of owner-operators have a hard time recognizing and admitting it to themselves. They just keep on pushing, trying to do everything themselves, Right. Studio owners, like especially owners of large facilities, they absolutely understand the importance of having a good team to keep the studio running. You, you're going to need studio manager, assistants, interns, potentially like a, a tech, like a full-time gear tech to keep the gear working, custodial services, potentially like a marketing person, a website person, you know. There could be even a tour guide in famous or historic studios. There might be uh, a school or like a, you know, sort of part-time education program involved with the studio. And you're going to need teachers. You're going to need... It can be really dense. You can get a lot of employees to run a major studio. And a producer understands the idea of delegation too, because very often that's a part of the job description. The producer will hire the engineer, they'll hire the session players, they'll hire, you know, they'll find the best studio for the project, they'll hire the mastering engineer, they'll hire the mixer, and 
it's just part of the job, right? If you're in the executive producer on a project, you're basically the director of the film. You know what I mean? In many cases, the producer can even define how much work they are even going to do or if they're more just going to be like a manager, right? Some producers don't actually do that much hands-on work on the audio. You know, they may not set up a single mic. They might not mix. They'll just hire an awesome team and delegate all those jobs to more talented people. And that will allow them to focus on the music and the performance and the vision and just let all of the other people handle the technical stuff. And sure, there are plenty of situations where producers are very hands-on, but my point is producers tend to understand the importance of delegation when it is necessary. If there is somebody that you can afford to hire to do the job better and easier so that you can focus on other things, they're going to do it, you know? As owner-operators, it can be very difficult to get into this mindset. It can be really hard to let things go. We feel like we're responsible for everything, for the building, for the audio quality, for the experience, for the vibe, like all of it. But after enough years of doing that, you begin to realize how doing this can actually be a compromise. For example, back in 2013, I decided to outsource all of my mastering to someone else. So any project that I record and mix, I pretty much never master anymore. It was a decision that I was a little worried about at first, but I have not regretted it for a single second, okay? It made everything better. Did I make less money on the projects I was working on? Yes, but look at what I gained. An unbiased, dedicated third party to hear every record that I do with a fresh perspective, they have mastering specific gear, and they're listening from that mindset all the time. And I'm losing, what, 50 or 100 bucks? per song, it's it's not even worth it. You know, it's not even worth it to complain about it um, because what I gained was so much better. To me, that is priceless, right? It's not even really a matter because I can't, there's no amount of money that will suddenly make me unknow the project, right? It, it, it's not possible. I've worked with it for too many, too many months or weeks or however long I've been working on it. I can't unknow it. But I send it to an unbiased mastering engineer who's never heard the project. They're going to have a great perspective on it. Anyway, over the years, I have tried to delegate certain things to other people. I've had a handful of really great interns over the years. I've dedicated certain random jobs to various assistants part-time. Like, hey, will you edit this series of podcasts? Will you edit these drums? Will you edit this you know, just individual jobs here and there. But I've been really feeling the itch to have somebody here consistently. If you talk to any successful entrepreneur, they will tell you the same thing. You cannot scale your business unless you learn to let go of certain things and delegate it to other skilled people. You can't think about what you'll lose. You have to think about what you'll gain. By delegating tasks to other people, you'll clear your plate of things that otherwise would hold you back, distract you, waste your time, and potentially even compromise the product or service. Most importantly, you'll begin the process of buying back your time. And that's like a really powerful business move, okay? Buying back time is something that virtually every successful entrepreneur on the planet does. It allows them to focus on the parts of the business that they love, which improves mood, creativity, quality of the service or product, 
mindset and all those other things that you don't love to do as much, but the things that still need still need to be done, you delegate to others and you pay them well and they do it well. Do you make less profit? I mean, on paper, yes, but you got to think about what you gain. Okay. We're, we're going to kind of unpack this a little bit. So if you're like me, I'm sure you've said the phrase, there's just not enough hours in the day before, right? Like we all know what that's like to just work and work and work and work and then feel like you barely got anything done to feel like you could still use four days to catch up, you know? Well, imagine getting back two hours every day, okay? Let's say just two hours a day that you get back. Well, that's 14 hours a week, and that's basically like six days a month, okay? Imagine getting a free work week at the end of the month, okay? That's crazy. With a six-day work week like mine, two hours a day gets you 48 hours at the end of the month, like an entire week that you didn't even know was there. So how is this possible? One word, delegation. What seems like less profit on paper really isn't the whole story. So let's do some simple numbers here, right? Say you hire an assistant for 15 bucks an hour and you have them work 20 hours a week. Now let's say that they're half as efficient as you, okay? So they don't necessarily save you 20 hours a week. Let's say they save you 10, right? And usually an assistant is not going to be as efficient as you because you know it better than anybody, right? As the owner operator, you know the job, it's your baby, you understand it, right? It's your child, <laughs> right? But let's just say they're half as efficient as you, okay? So all you have to do is compare, number one, how much you would charge for 10 hours of work versus, number two, how much it costs to hire them for 20 hours, right? So let's say if you charge $50 an hour for 10 hours, that's $500 for you, right? If you pay them $15 an hour for 20 hours, that's $300 for them. So in a way, you're actually saving $200 a week by delegating just some of the work to somebody else. 20 hours a week, you're saving basically $200 a week of your own time because you have essentially bought back your time. And your time is worth more on paper than what you're paying the assistant. This is the exact mindset shift that finally convinced me it was time to hire someone part-time. This mindset has been echoed by tons of successful entrepreneurs and business owners. If you really want to fly, you've got to let go first, <laughs> you know? So my advice for you is get out a piece of paper, open a Word document, whatever, and divide it into three columns. In column one, make a list of every single task that you do in a month, okay? And I mean it, everything you do in a month. This could be everything from actual like audio-related tasks to answering emails, setting up microphones, cleaning the studio, mailing packages, uh, testing gear, doing shootouts, um, trying to replace guitar strings and uh, drum heads and cleaning up instruments and setting them up. Make a list of everything that you do and how long it takes. Now, cross out the things that you actually love to do, the things that you're passionate about, the things that you're best at. Chances are it's probably going to be mostly the audio-related stuff, right? Producing, mixing, recording, even, even maybe editing, right? Maybe you don't even mind the editing that much. But the other stuff, cleaning, uh, restocking water and coffee, wrapping cables, mailing packages, booking appointments, 
all that stuff can add up to quite a few hours every week, right? Even though it only seems like 30 minutes here or there, 20 minutes, right? That stuff adds up big time, right? Next, make a list of the things that you wish you had time to do. So this is in column two, right? Column one is all the things that you do. Column two is make a list of the things you wish you had time to do, the things that you don't have time to do right now. Maybe it's post more content on social media. Maybe it's have a YouTube channel. Maybe it's answering and returning phone calls when you're in session. Maybe it's documenting every mic choice and preamp choice and EQ move and taking pictures of your setup so that you can recreate it later. Maybe it's giving tours of the studio or having meetings with people. That's something that I generally don't have time to do. And I kind of feel bad in a way doing it. But when people want to come see the studio, usually it means they're fairly serious and they're wanting to look at the studio to see if it will work for a project. But it's like, I'm not getting paid to show you around my studio and answer your questions. Why would I do this, right? If I have an assistant to be working on certain things while I am doing that, I feel less guilty, so to speak, about spending an hour, uh, you know, kind of doing a meet and greet with a new client, right? These are things that I just don't have time to do really right now, but I wish I did. I wish I could. Over the years, I've really tried to make my job as efficient as possible, like the session to be really efficient, a lean, mean machine, right? But in doing that, you have to trim a lot of fat. You have to get rid of some of these other services and things that you don't necessarily have time to do. But I think if I could do them, if I could go grab lunch with a client or a potential client or, you know, just spend a little more time answering calls and emails quickly rather than at the end of the night when I have my phone on silent, right? Like I could provide better customer service to my clients or potential clients, right? Now on the third column, make a list of the things that would be sped up by having somebody there to help you. Okay. So these are things that you might not necessarily let go completely, but they're things that would be drastically sped up if you had somebody helping you. Okay. For example, helping the band load in gear in the morning, setting up and tearing down microphones, right? Moving acoustic panels or gobos. Think about all the things that uh, your assistant could help you do, right? If you're like me, you'll quickly realize how much of your time you spend doing tons of tasks in series, right? So you do thing one, then you move on to thing two, thing three, thing four, right? But if you have just one other person there to help you, you can suddenly do things in parallel, right? So you can be working on thing one while the assistant is working on thing two. So that's really powerful. Think about how much time you could save, how many hours a week you could save, how many days per month that equates to, right? How many weeks per year? Again, even if you just save two hours a day, right? And let's say that you have to hire an assistant for five hours a day to save you two hours a day. Even still, that's 48 hours at the end of the month that you've saved. It's crazy when you really think about it. Okay. This is, like I said, this is the mindset that got me in the right space to hire somebody. And I was saying to myself, I need to get on that now. So I want to talk about some specifics of when is the right time for you to hire an assistant or an intern. 
This is going to vary from person to person, right? But for me personally, three specific things happened that made me realize that it was time. Number one, I've been making pretty good, reliable money for the last five or six years. You know, I've been doing this for about 15 years, but even through that first 10, it seemed, you know, to go up and down, a little less stable. My name hadn't really gotten out there even until year five or six. And then it was an adjustment period working with the new studio for a couple years and trying to get things more stable. But for the last five or six years, my business has been very stable and I'm making better money than I was back then. I'm also very well equipped as a studio, meaning I have basically all the gear that I need. At this point, the gear that I buy is more like an upgrade or it's something that I just think would be cool for clients to have, like a new instrument or a new snare or new cymbals. That means I'm not spending as much money building my assets. I'm not spending as much money on equipment, which means I have room in the budget to hire a person. It's still a tax write-off. It's still a business expense. But now I'm investing in work. I'm buying back time rather than gear. Number two, over the last five or six years, I've been trying the best I can to achieve better work-life balance, right? I stopped having sessions on Sundays, Right? I tried to set stricter limits on the hours that I would work. I've really tried to give my wife as much of my spare time as I possibly can. And it's really tough. I'm sure any of you out there listening to this that do this part-time or full-time or whatever, you know, it's tough. It's, it, it's just really difficult. But eventually, I still kind of hit a wall. I was doing all the things that I could do. I was trying to take as much time as I could to, you know, set boundaries, set limits, not work on these off times. But, you know, I just don't really have enough time. (laughs) I just still feel like I didn't have enough time to take off work, travel, do as many things with my wife not a whole lot of time to work on other projects or like home repairs or other side gigs that I've got, right? Like such as Recording Lounge, right? Like I I don't have a ton of time to work on this. I just never feel like I have enough time. I, I feel like I hit a wall. So no matter how much more efficient my studio got, I eventually started shaving off minutes instead of hours. And then it was like, well, now I'm really only saving myself a couple minutes a day by doing this or by doing that, right? It's like, it's kind of like acoustic panels. Like as you put more in your room, the the effect becomes less noticeable. Um, the early panels make a huge difference because it's like from an untreated room to suddenly there's absorption in there. And then like, as you add more, it's like exponentially less effect and it becomes harder to hear a difference and harder to measure a difference. So that's kind of how I felt with my work efficiency. It was like, I made these big moves. I made these decisions. I'm only going to work till this time. I'm not going to work on Sundays. I'm going to try to spend time with my wife here and here and here. But eventually it's like, okay, I'm doing all that. I still don't have enough time. And number three, finally, it occurred to me that after a certain amount of time, most studios have the same gear, the same plugins. The same speakers, the same, you know, they all have good rooms. They can get great sounds. But the biggest differences are, A, the person running it, and B, the experience the client has when they're there. And for me, to be the best person that I can be running the show, I need help. An, An assistant can bridge that gap by helping me be efficient, stay on task, helping me make the record process uh, easy for the client and and less stressful for me and for them. 
And that gives the client a better experience. If the, if the studio is clean and has water and coffee and, you know, the trash is taken out and mics are getting set up and things are moving, like making sure there's somebody there to help them load in their gear and go uh, run and get lunch for everybody. Like those little things add up to saving the client time, saving me time, giving the client a better experience. The, it's, it's more relaxed. It's more valuable to them. They're getting more out of the same amount of money that they're spending. They go to another studio and they don't have that. It's not quite the same experience. So the quality of the recording is not necessarily the only thing that matters. And it's not something clients really talk about a lot, but it's there, right? It's it's just like any of you. You might not think, oh, you know, I'll eat at a hole-in-the-wall restaurant. I don't care as long as the food is amazing. But at the same time, if you go to a nice restaurant and the atmosphere is awesome, there's great music, It it's, you know awesome food, the wait staff is amazing. That's special, you know? So even if you don't mind going to a restaurant, a hole in the wall, you know, place where you get a greasy burger and it's amazing, <laughs> like that's great too. But when you go to a place where you're really treated well, you notice and you're like, man, I wish I could eat there more often because it's great. I have such a great experience, right? So if you're feeling like I did, maybe it's time for you to hire an assistant or an intern. Believe me, it's really not as expensive as you might think it is, particularly if they're part-time working one, two, three days a week. At first, I kept making excuses like, well, who's going to want to work for 20 hours a week? People want full-time work. But eventually, it hit me, and it's kind of hilarious that I didn't think about it before, but most musicians and aspiring audio engineers are already freelancers. They're already gig workers, right? They're they're trying to find more regular, stable gigs because they're so used to, uh, you know, gigging the interspersed, you know, random gig life. Stable gigs are good. They're desirable. So to say like, hey, I want you here for, you know, 20 hours a week regularly, musicians tend to like that stuff because it adds stability to their life, right? And chances are the people who are going to be applying for a studio job are probably musicians or at least in that scene somewhat, right? And and to know that they're going to make X dollars per week from this stable assistant gig, that's pretty desirable. So don't make assumptions. Don't, don't think that people aren't going to work 10 or 20 hours a week. I had a lot of interest in the job, which you'll hear about next. So now we're going to look at how to hire an assistant, how to post about the job, what to ask for, uh, how to sort through the applicants and find the best ones. Now, I did a lot of research on this topic. Like I said, I've never hired anybody like this before. I've had interns. It was always very casual. But this, I really wanted to try to find the right fit. And I did so much research. So hopefully I can save you some time and give you some tips that I've picked up along the way. So let's go for it. Now, personally, I would recommend starting with the social media platform where you have the most connections. Rather than posting on, you know, Monster or any of these like job websites, I wouldn't even bother with that personally. Um, for me, it's Facebook. I have the most connections or friends on Facebook, right? I didn't even post about the job listing on my studio page because I actually have more connections on my personal page. 
I have over 2,000, quote, friends, right? We're fighting against the social media algorithms, so you kind of just have to lean into it and go with what works best in that department because you don't really have a lot of control over it. So in that sense, I would say just go where you have the biggest network, right? So I posted about the job and I made the post public. That means that anybody can share it with their friends. So for every person that shares the post, their network is going to see it. And as you can imagine, this reach can get exponentially large very quickly because if my network is mostly musicians and audio people, then probably their network is also musicians and audio people. And I posted about how I was looking for a part-time assistant one or two days a week at first, hopefully to be expanded to three. And, you know, I wanted them here at the studio. This is not a remote job. I was clear that this is like, a more entry-level kind of position, doesn't need tons of studio experience. And I talked about how I wanted somebody that was flexible in their schedule, reliable, detail-oriented, trustworthy, quick learning, good at following directions, good with social media, patient, humble, and able to be quiet and just listen. I mentioned that the job was going to be like a studio assistant type position with a little bit of personal assistant duties kind of mixed in, maybe 80-20. So most of it will be helping me around the studio with tasks, but some of it might involve small errands, mailing packages, doing food runs, you know, nothing, nothing crazy, not like getting my laundry or anything, but, you know, just some stuff that was a little more on the personal assistant kind of side, answering the phones, scheduling stuff, right? So if anyone has a problem with that, they probably shouldn't apply, like if they don't want to do that, right? At the end of the posting, I gave one very critical instruction, and this is some advice that I got from a friend of mine. At the end of the post, I said, if you're interested in the job, send me an email with your resume, your contact info, and tell me why you're, why you're interested in the job. Now, that last part is critical because it's the first test to see if the person can follow instructions or not. And I got to say, I got a lot of people that commented or shared, sent me Facebook messages, they texted me, they sent me messages on Instagram or to my studio page, and I pretty much ignored most of those because that was not the instruction. I specifically asked for people to email me because I wanted all of the job-related stuff in one place, right? Making me search five different websites and apps and inboxes for everybody's stuff is completely antithetical to the purpose of me hiring an assistant, right? That's a time waster for me. Even worse, some people would comment, I'm interested, contact me. <laughs> so, so I'm going to take my time to hunt you down and contact you and wait for you to reply. That's not really how this works, right? You apply for a job, you don't sit around and wait for a CEO to text you, okay? So, <laughs> like I said, I, I had a ton of people email me still, but not even a fraction of the people that said they would or the people that contacted me directly in a way that I didn't ask for. And again, what did I say up on the post before? Number six was good at following instructions. And if you can't follow the first instruction, chances are I probably won't hire you, you know? I had a handful of people that I know personally text me or call me. And at first my thought was, well, you know, we're friends, so maybe they felt like it was actually more personal or professional even to contact me that way. But again, that was not the instruction in the post. And 
in a way, like if your internal monologue told you, oh, I don't have to do that. We're friends. I'll just text him. Then maybe this isn't the job for you. You know, there are a lot of things I need done in the studio, many of which are repetitive and probably boring. And I can't have an assistant saying, oh, I don't have to do that. We're friends. Right. Like that's kind of a weird relationship to hire a friend or someone that you already really know personally. Sometimes it can work fine. Depends on the job. Depends on the industry. Blah, blah, blah. Right. But in this case, I don't know if I necessarily wanted to hire a friend. I kind of wanted to hire someone I didn't know. When all is said and done, I ended up getting 19 applicants who actually followed the instructions, who sent me an email, who had a resume, who told me why they wanted the job, and I had all of it in one spot. So out of over 100 people who showed interest in the job, out of maybe another 10 or 15 that incorrectly messaged me or texted me or whatever, uh, I was left with 19 right? Just from this first thing. And I got that piece of advice from a friend of mine in real estate who was like, put an instruction in your job post. And if they can't follow that instruction, don't hire them. Don't even consider them. I, I really believe it would have been, you know, 30, 40 people if they actually had followed the instructions in the post. But like I said, I was able to weed out a lot of people who couldn't follow that first instruction. Now, the end goal was to interview my top three picks in person. But I have 19 at the moment. So in order to get down to three, I had to weed out a lot of people. Some of this was easier than I thought. Some of it was more difficult. You know, some people had a really sloppy resume or they had tons of spelling errors or it was just didn't look professional or they lived too far away. You know, there's one guy who applied who lives like three hours away. I was like, are you planning on moving or are you going to drive three hours? I mean, you know, there were some things like that that were a little more obvious, red flags to me. And there are others that were a little more difficult to spot, but still pretty obvious. One of those being people spent the entire email talking about how much they want it and how much they are going to learn from it and why it's the perfect job for them and saying nothing about what what skills they have to bring to me. Like I'm the one hiring And all they were talking about is how much of a great experience it would be for them. That's a big red flag for all of you out there applying for internships or or assistant positions or jobs. Like, don't do that. (laughs) Don't don't spend your email talking about how much you want to learn and how much you are going to get out of the experience and why you need it to advance your career. I'm not interested in hiring that person. I want somebody who who will very simply say here are my skills. I think I can help you out and make your life easier. Like automatically advances you way closer to the top of the pack if you say that. Okay. Um, Anyway, there are also some people who just weren't going to be available on the days that I needed them. So that was a pretty easy thing to weed out. Right. And there were a few people that were overqualified, that were far too good for the job. And some people might be confused as to why overqualified people don't get the job as often. And there are really three main reasons for that. Number one, overqualified people don't really need the job and there's not as much incentive for them to learn, like be really involved, pay attention because they feel like they already know a lot. They, because they do, they have a lot of experience in the area, but you kind of want somebody who is hungry, somebody who wants to be challenged. They want to learn. They're not bored because they're just They need all this new information. People who are, you know, 10, 15, 20 years of experience already, it's like 
you kind of already know the job. You're not going to be challenged. You're probably going to be bored. And you might even resent the work somewhat because you feel like it's beneath their skill set. And frankly, it is. <laughs> so I, I don't blame them for feeling that. It, it is beneath their skill set. Another thing is that overqualified people, especially people who have owned their own business, have developed a lot of habits and techniques that are just totally second nature to them. Like they are very used to doing it their way. But I'm more interested in teaching them my way, how I want things done, because this is my business, which means I have to actually sort of untrain them and then train them, right? And so it actually takes more time for me to do that in some ways. And I don't need somebody who's overconfident and says like, ah, well, this is how I do it and it works for me. So I'm going to do it this way. Right. Like that's not the attitude that I really want or need. That's an awkward thing between like me and an assistant. Right. I, I'd much rather have an assistant or a, an employee who says, how would you like this done? How, how do you want me to do this? And one final note about overqualified people. At a certain point, it's kind of like you're just training a competitor and paying them. I, I hate to look at it that way, but it's kind of true. I mean, if somebody's really qualified, overqualified for a job, why? Are they taking the job when they could do what you're doing and charge what you're charging, if not more? It's very suspicious, you know? It makes me question people's intentions. Do they really show an interest in you or your work or your studio? Or are they really just interested in advancing their career, in, in getting better, in learning, in advancing their sound? And I get that that's, you know, underlying, like, in a lot of applicants. They they do want to get better and advance their career, yes. But again, the way I look at it is I'm hiring someone to advance my career, not theirs, right? Like, their career will advance as a side effect. But, like, I'm not hiring someone just because I want a student. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, I need a worker. I need somebody who's going to help me. So you got to just analyze people's intentions and try to read through their resume, read through their email, and try to figure out why they want the job. And so, yeah, I turned down a couple of people that were very overqualified for the position. It was like, you would do great at this job, but it, there are so many other red flags that make me not want to hire you. Now, all of that's just my opinion. There have been a lot of studies on overqualified job applicants, and the results have varied a lot. You know, some people believe the overqualification thing is a myth. Google recruiters have said that the worst thing you can do is compromise on skills. You know, um, Mark Zuckerberg has said that he looks for people that he would work for, people that display that much skill, that much character, and that much confidence that you would like be like, man, I want to start a business with that person. Now, to be fair, they're in the tech world. That's a very high-paid, high-skill job. But all of that being said, um, more recruiters out there believe that hiring overqualified people is just asking for them to leave. They're going to get bored. They won't feel utilized to their full potential, and they're just going to leave. An important thing to note here is when turning down a job applicant because they're overqualified, it's actually not a good idea to use the word overqualified. In fact, you really don't have to tell them anything at all. In some situations, overqualified can actually be seen as a discriminatory term, especially if the job applicant is older. All you really have to say is, uh, you know, I'm sorry, but you have not been selected for this position. 
you can certainly be nice and co- and compliment them on their skills and their resume. You know, oh, this all looked great. You know, as I'm sorry to say, we weren't selected, blah, 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 blah. But again, it's not a good idea to tell people you're overqualified and that's why you're not getting hired. Anyway, moving on. Like I said, many of the red flags to look for are being overqualified, being really underqualified, like having zero experience, having no resume or a sloppy resume, lots of spelling errors or a lack of professionalism in the email, a lot of arrogance in the email. Like, uh, you know, like I, I never really liked that sort of like bravado job applicant thing. Like one person that applied said, you'd be wasting your time hiring anyone else. And that's like crossing the line of like confidence to me. And it goes into arrogant territory, right? It was a real turnoff when they said that. Um, and I get it. It's like, it's like, I appreciate the confidence, but to tell me that I would be wasting my time, uh, to hire someone else. Yeah. Just hit me the wrong way. So I eliminated 12 people. It was pretty easy to spot. There were some difficult things. It was still difficult to send those rejection emails. Um, I do recommend trying to keep it short and sweet. You know, thank you for the time you took to send me your resume, contact info. Thanks for your interest in the job. It was great getting to learn a little bit more about you. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say you've not been selected for this position. I, I wish you the best in your future endeavors, right? Done. Very simple, to the point. You don't have to go on and on. Rip off the Band-Aid and keep it simple and light. Um, if they ask you why they were rejected, I would be very cautious in responding. If you do decide to do it as a courtesy, I would just read, reread, and triple check your wording to make sure that you don't say anything that could be misconstrued as like discrimination, right? Honestly, you're better off saying something a little bit cliche, like it was a difficult decision, but ultimately another candidate had the qualifications that I'm looking for. I know that's like businessy language, but it's safe, it's generic, uh, you know, when in doubt, try not to focus on what they did wrong, but instead tell them what the other applicants did right, shift the focus away so that it doesn't seem like you're attacking them because, you know, it's a tough thing being turned down for a job. You know, it, it, it can be really emotional for people and you don't want to get yourself into a bad situation. <laughs> um So now at this point, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, so what are you looking for in an assistant, right? Well, in a general sense, if you were to plot the assistant on an XY axis of character versus experience, I want somebody with really high character and kind of medium to low experience. I I don't want somebody who's completely unqualified, who has zero experience whatsoever, but I also don't want someone who is overqualified. I certainly want somebody who is trustworthy, professional, uh, not flaky. That's the last thing I want for sure. I, I, I really can't deal with people who are flaky, who don't show up. That drives me nuts, okay? <laughs> um, I can train people in audio skills, right? I can do, I do that all the time. That's what, what is this podcast? You know, like I I have students and I have uh, people I mentor. I'm used to training people. I have a passion for teaching, right? But what I can't teach people, at least not in a number of months or in a year is how to be honest, how to be transparent, how to be trustworthy, how to show up and have a good work ethic, how to follow through and follow directions. So those character traits are are so much more important to me because I can't really teach that. Like that's 
kind of about how a person was raised, their experiences, how they have developed as an adult. You know, we're talking like 20 to 30 years of character molding, right? Like I can't undo that in 20 or 30 days or two or three months or even a year. You know, that's some deeply ingrained stuff. So I really need them to be solid in that department. You know, that's kind of the first main lens that I'm looking through when reviewing the emails and the applications and the resumes, right? Anyway, moving on. So after this initial kind of weeding out of people, I was left with seven people. Now I still had to narrow this down to my top three. To do this, I sent them an email congratulating them on making it through the first round of the process is very simple. And I kindly asked them to answer a few more questions. I I told them this is almost like pre-interview questions or like a first round interview. So here are the questions that I asked and I'll tell you why. Question one, can you tell me a bit more about your studio experience specifically? What skills do you have that you can list? Now I asked this question because many times resumes can be a little bit more general. People will mention like, education, internships, or jobs. Maybe they'll say they have a home studio, but they don't include specific skills. That's a big thing that I'm always amazed by. Things like, can they wrap cables? Can they set up and tear down microphones? Can they solder? Can they replace guitar strings and drum heads? Can they tune drums? I'm not looking for general, like, cliche stuff. Like, I'm goal-driven, and I'm good at following directions. Like, obviously, I, I, I need that stuff. But I'm looking for specific skills that they can list. I can wrap cables. I can change guitar strings, right? Like that's a specific skill that you are listing. Question two, what is your approach to problem solving? Now, this is an interesting question because it's open-ended and it makes people examine themselves a little bit. It's also not really a question that they can fake. It's personal and there's no reason for them to lie about it. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm looking to see if this person is careful, methodical, uh, or if they just kind of fly by the seat of their pants and figure out things as they go. Personally, I'm a bit more interested in somebody that approaches things methodically, patiently, tactfully. I, I don't really want to hire somebody who's impulsive and hopes to just like figure it out as they go. I would rather them figure it out in advance. You know, it's a sort of a different mindset. Question number three, what tools or methods do you employ to keep things organized and efficient in your life or in your work? This question is another sort of open-ended question, but it's also pretty practical. What I was looking for is for people to just be honest and straightforward. I don't want a boring, cliche answer like, I'm very organized or I use a calendar. Like, those are kind of a given. What I'm looking for is somebody to tell me, you know, I'm a note taker. I use Microsoft Word, Evernote, Dropbox, uh, Microsoft Excel, Google Calendar, Gmail, whatever it may be. Like, I asked, what tools or methods do you employ to keep things efficient and organized in your life, right? So... I'm looking for things like I use these apps to set reminders to keep up with my schedule. I'm good at this. I'm good with Excel or I keep my calendar on my uh, lock screen on my phone or, you know, I want somebody to give me specific tools or methods by which they stay organized and efficient. Maybe they keep a notebook. Maybe they use a clipboard. I don't care what it is. I just want them to give me an answer, right? That's one of the biggest problems that I have seen Um, from either internship applications or, in this case, the assistant job, people seem to have a hard time just, like, answering the question. (laughs) 
<laughs> like they'll skirt all around it and, you know, give all this backstory kind of like the politician answer. And then they kind of weakly answer it at the end. And it's like, man, just say it. Just answer the question. Right. And then question four and five were a bit more practical. Uh, question four, I essentially uh, restated the days and times that I would need them and mentioned that I want to start training them at this general time frame and they need to start the job around this date. And so question four was basically like, is that going to work, right? And then question five, I asked about their hourly wage expectations. One important thing to note about that, um, it, it's not a good idea. And in some cases, it's illegal to actually ask somebody what they're currently making. That's a slightly different but very different legally question, okay? So you can't necessarily ask somebody what they make now. So you have to ask a question more like, what are your hourly wage expectations for this position? Now, you might be thinking to yourself, why ask them about their hourly wage expectations? I mean, didn't you say 15 or 16 an hour? Well, here's the deal. Up to this point, I haven't even mentioned how much the job pays. That was another piece of advice that I got from a friend of mine who mentioned, you know, the uh, putting your email instruction at the end of your post. He also gave me that piece of advice, don't tell people what it pays at first, because if that's the first thing they ask about, they're probably not super passionate about it. If it's the second or third thing they ask about, that's probably about right, <laughs> you know, because eventually everyone needs to know. They deserve to know, obviously, what it's going to pay. But up front, you want people who are like, you know, I'm assuming it's going to pay okay. Uh, I'm not going to really ask about that right away because I really want this job, right? Again, I'm more interested in character at this point than I am in skill set. I want people who are passionate about this, who are interested in what I'm doing and interested in my studio and my work. So asking this question helps me get at least some frame of reference for maybe what they're used to or what they've made in the past or what they need to make to make this viable. And it can help me weed out some other people. If somebody says, like, they're expecting 30 bucks an hour... It's like, oh, I think you think this is more like a an assistant assistant job where you're going to be doing a bunch of editing and, you know, like hardcore audio work. That is not really this job. And if they say something like eight or nine bucks an hour, it's like, oh, wow, they probably are used to making minimum wage or just barely slightly above. I'm going to pay them more than that. But it, it, it's good to just know what people are kind of expecting out of the job because it also gives you an idea of, you know, where is their head at on this, right? Like... It's almost like asking them, what would you pay somebody to do this job, right? And that's a really interesting thing. So these like pre-interview questions helped me get a little bit more insight into their personality, their character, their professionalism and email etiquette, and practically speaking, their schedule and financial viability. Again, I'm a bit more interested in their character and their professionalism more than the specifics of their audio knowledge. So I asked everybody to get me their answers to these questions by X date, which was like three or four days from then. Plenty of time for them to answer. At this point, all I had to do was wait for the responses. In the meantime, I decided that I had to develop some sort of scale or point system because it was only going to get harder to decide from here. So first things first, I reviewed the top seven and looked at their resumes and initial emails again and gave them a score uh, from one to 10 based on, 
you know, those things. Like one being, I don't feel great about how they did this. 10 being, I feel really good about how they did this, right? Um, so that's based on their resume, their email etiquette, you know, their answer to the original question, why do you want this job? So I just started putting it in like an Excel spreadsheet, right? After sending out the new questions, I decided that I was also going to award the first three respondents with a bonus point for promptness because I sent out all the emails basically at the same time. I mean, within minutes of each other, right? Uh, and it's really important to me that my assistant is fairly available and reads emails in a timely manner. So I just thought, all right, first three people to respond, whether it's an hour or a day or whatever, I'll give them a bonus point, right? Um, I know it seems obvious, but you'd be surprised at how many of these emails came in like one or two hours before the cutoff time that I gave them. Yeah, that's a red flag to me. Anyway, uh, so after reading through the questions, uh, there were definitely some other red flags, mostly with availability or professionalism or email etiquette. For example, um, one of the applicants sent me like six or seven pages of a response to these five questions. Um, it, it was so like unreadable in an email that I had to copy and paste it into Microsoft Word just to just to really read it. And I had to like separate it into different paragraphs and the form remove formatting and like all this stuff like to just like understand it and like process it visually, right? And I wanted to read what they had to say, but what started as like a set of five simple questions became this like 30 minute endeavor for me, right? So here's a tip for all of you out there. Don't make your potential new boss spend 30 minutes learning about you, right? Try to keep your answers brief and to the point. And again, make sure you actually answer the question. Don't get so caught up in the details that you end up like rambling and then kind of summarizing with the answer, right? It's a really common thing I saw on some of these applications. Um, so after much debate, after really trying my hardest to weed out people for the right reasons, for legitimate concerns or red flags, um, there was actually one person who their income expectation answer was $25 an hour, which is much higher than I intended on paying. And nobody else out of those seven was in that region. Most people were between $10 and $20 an hour, which was kind of what I expected. Like I said, I'm planning on paying $15 or $16 an hour. So I was just kind of curious, is somebody expecting like 10 or like 18 how how off is my assessment of this job, right? After talking to some of these people and, you know, they're starting to get an idea of what I need them to do, how far off am I? So turns out, I think that's a very fair wage for this job, at least where I am in the world, uh, $15, $16 an hour seemed to be kind of right on the head. Like it seemed to be really good. So like I said, I got down to my top four. I originally wanted three, but it was just really tough. The top four were all very capable, seemed great character. I was interested in all of them. So I decided to invite the top four for an in-person interview. Uh, this in and of itself was sort of like a mini test because I wanted to see how well they communicated in terms of scheduling. So I gave them some dates and I said, what's your availability on these dates? I'm really flexible. Um, three of the four responded within a day. And all of them picked just the first few days I gave them. That's a good sign, right? It means they're ready, they're willing, they don't want to delay the process anymore, uh, and neither do I, right? This has already taken 
a, a week or two at this point, right? Now, the fourth candidate took a few days to respond to this and showed a little bit of hesitancy, not a whole lot of flexibility with scheduling. And that might seem like nitpicking, but a few days later, candidate four actually ended up withdrawing from the job consideration altogether. Uh, after talking with a current boss, they realized that they weren't going to be able to rearrange the schedule to accommodate a, another part-time job. Uh, candidate four was uh, very professional, very polite. Uh, I totally get it, right? Like, I have much more respect for a candidate who checks all their bases ahead of time, doesn't waste my time in an interview when they realize, oh, my schedule is not actually going to work out for this job like I thought. I, I really thought it would, but it's not going to. Um, they could have easily accepted the interview, come to an interview, and then said, oh, I can't do it. And that's really wasting my time. So I have much more respect for the candidate who before the interview said, I've double checked this and it's not going to work out. So kudos to candidate four uh, for doing the hard thing and admitting that it wasn't going to work out. So then it was down to three. The interviews were scheduled and I was ready to roll. One thing I found super fascinating is that out of these candidates, out of all original 19, based on resumes alone, the top three were my original top three. So I don't know. Maybe there is something to the resume and the email etiquette. I, there's something there because the ones that I got the best vibe about early on, literally the top three were the top three, which is crazy. Now, I decided to send them a few, but not all, of the interview questions ahead of time. I don't really like putting people on the spot completely. Uh, maybe just a little bit. <laughs> like, I read a bunch of different articles about the pros and cons of sending interview questions ahead of time. And after much debate, I decided to send them half of them. <laughs> Pretty basic compromise, I know, but I, I figured that this would still give me a chance to see how they think on their feet, but also gives them give them some things to ponder ahead of time so they don't feel, like, unnecessarily nervous or blindsided by a question. Um, I don't like the idea of judging someone's job performance on how well they do an interview completely because, you know, an interview is an interview. It's not a job. Um, so it was like a little homework assignment, right? It's like gave them a few questions. Um, you know, for example, one of the questions that I gave them was actually, um, what questions do you have for me about the job? You know, I, I wanted them to prepare three, four, five questions to ask me about the job or uh, the studio or their place in this whole thing, right? So that gives them some things to think about and also maybe lowers some stress and hopefully makes them not so nervous about the interview because they have some of the questions ahead of time. So uh, here are the final interview questions that I asked and I'll give you some reasons why I asked them. Number one, do you have any other interesting skills that are not audio or music related? I asked this question mostly because I'm just curious. You know, there are a lot of skills that are not audio related that can still come in handy a lot in a studio. For example, uh, photography, video editing, woodworking, graphic design, electrical work, uh, even plumbing. You know, there are lots of skills people can have hidden under the hood that they haven't talked about that actually could come in handy in a studio. Question two, if you had to choose one of the following, which would you choose? Create a new process or master an existing process? This is another one of those open-ended questions, and I like this one a lot because it tells me a little bit about their confidence and their ability to follow directions. If somebody says they'd rather master an existing process, it means they'll probably be good at following directions, 
But on the downside, maybe it might mean they're always looking to me to tell them what to do rather than looking at what needs to be done and just doing it. If somebody says they'd rather create a new process, it means they're probably good at problem solving. They like to solve problems. They're good at thinking on their feet, trying to find the inefficient things and fix them. But it could also mean that they'll be a little bit stubborn. They might have a harder time following instructions. They might get caught up in their way versus like my way, right? There are pros and cons to either. I'm not saying there's a correct answer here. I'm really just curious to get a window into how their mind works. I think if I were to answer this question, I would probably say I would rather master an existing process if it's working, create a new process if it's not. That's probably how I would answer the question. Um, again, there's not really a right or wrong way to answer this question. You can answer it however you want. I'm, I'm just curious to see how people's brains work, right? Okay, question number three. Can you describe a situation where you anticipated a problem and took steps to prevent it? Again, I'm really looking for people to answer the question, not give me a general thing, not give me like, oh, you know, I problem solve all the time, blah, blah, blah. I want them to give me a situation where they anticipated a problem and took steps to prevent it. Um, this is one of the questions I gave them ahead of time, right? It's a little bit of a weird question to just spring it on somebody in the moment. So I put it in the email so they could think about it. I was really looking for a clear, direct example, right? Like, this is a pretty direct question. It seems open-ended at first, but it's not. I gave it to them ahead of time. So they could think about past jobs or situations or like anything, family or friends or marriage or whatever, something where they had to think, what is the problem? What could be a problem? What can I do to prevent it from happening, right? And I'm more concerned with how resourceful their solution was rather than like focusing on how bad the problem was, right? Like I'm interested to see how they solved problems. In that sort of pre-interview, I asked them what their approach is to solving problems. This is basically the follow-up to that saying, okay, prove it. Show me a time where you solved a problem before it happened. Um, specific answers are preferred. Right. If someone just tells me like, oh, I problem solve all the time, it's just a little less impressive. Right. I want a specific situation. And I got some good answers on that. You know, I got some like, oh, well, at my last job, this is, you know, the type of thing I do. And then this situation was coming up in a couple of weeks. I saw it was about to happen and I suggested to my manager, blah, 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 blah. I did this. I changed my schedule around to do this and this. And we were able to knock it out of the park. That is perfect. Like that's the kind of answer I'm looking for, a specific example. Question number four, what's the best gift you've ever given to a friend, family member, or significant other? This is sort of a weird question, but I did give this to people ahead of time. Um, the purpose of this question is to kind of gauge like the character and thoughtfulness of a person. Are they thinking of the needs of other people? Are they thinking deeply about those things or are they kind of very much on the surface? You know, ultimately, this business is working with people. Artists are very sensitive and peculiar people, and they're paying you to record songs of them bleeding out their emotions for the world to see. So it's important to hire somebody who is thoughtful and emotionally mature, stable, and considerate of others and their unique personalities. You know, if somebody said something like, I bought my mom some flowers, that's like, okay, sure, nice gift. But it's not necessarily super personal. It doesn't show a ton of thought. But if somebody says, I wrote a song for my mom, that's a little different. Now it's like, oh, you actually, you put a lot of work into that. 
And again, it's not about how much they spent. It's it's the thought that counts, as they say, right? Whose mom would not love their son or daughter to write a song for them, right? Like, that's great, <laughs> right? And other times it's, I made something for somebody or I uh, took somebody on a vacation or I did this because it was blank, because it was special, right? Like, I want to know why that gift was the best, right? Not just, I bought this person a gold ring or something. It's like, do they like gold or is that like, is that significant? You know, like, so I'm more interested in gauging what a person considers to be a good gift, right? What they value and what the people around them value. Also, I'm kind of curious because I'm kind of bad at giving gifts. <laughs> and so if I have an assistant who is good at giving gifts, maybe I can have them buy gifts for people in my life. But that's that's between you and me. Question number five. What do you listen to in the car? Music, podcasts, books, anything at all? This is another simple but informative question. There's no grand revelation from the answer, but it is interesting to see what people are listening to. Do they listen to music, books, podcasts? It kind of gives you a little bit of a better idea of their culture fit. For example, if you mostly work on hip-hop and the applicant listens to almost exclusively country music and you don't like country music and they don't like hip-hop, you know... (laughs) You probably need to think about that one, right? Would they really fit in in your studio? Would they fit in with the culture of your clients? Would they be interested in the music that you're bringing in? Or would they be bored or would they be miserable, right? Like, I know it seems silly, but it does matter. Like, we've talked about this on the podcast before. You're always going to do better work when you like the work, right? And I believe the same would be true for an assistant. If they're surrounded by music they love, they're going to work harder, If they're surrounded by music they don't even like, I mean, it's going to be tough to make sure they're paying attention. Question six. Now, a lot of job interviewers will ask something like, where do you see yourself in five years, right? But I'm actually more interested to ask my applicants, where do you see yourself during the next five years? What's happening in your life over the next five years? Any big life changes, uh, any plans to move or change or switch careers, anything at all in the next five years? Now, I ask this question because it shows two things. Number one, if they actually have an answer, it means that they have a five-year plan. Like, they have things that they're planning to do in the next five years. And that's great to me. I like people who think about their life ahead of time and who plan and who, uh, you know, are, are looking for the future. They're not looking in the past. They're looking forward, right? But on the second half is just a practical question, really. Like, I'm genuinely curious to see if they have any big life changes that I probably should be aware of. For example, I probably don't want to hire somebody if they plan on moving across the country in the next six months or a year. (laughs) Uh, Or if somebody's about to have new babies, it would be at least helpful for me to know. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm not going to hire them, but it would be helpful for me to know, like, oh, okay, there might be a period of time where they might be out for a couple weeks or or a month or something like that, right? Like, I, I just need to know. That's the type of thing that uh, we're starting to get to know each other. We're starting to be honest. And like, I want to know of those things. What plans do they have? Are they starting school? Are they getting married? Are they quitting another job or starting a new job? Are they buying a home? I'm just kind of curious what big life changes are there so that I can kind of gauge Is this person going to be really busy, really not busy? Are they going to be reliable? Are they 
uh, going to leave six months from now. <laughs> you know, uh, again, I, I don't want to have to go through this entire process again, six months from now, I want to hire somebody that will be with me for a number of years, maybe not forever, but you know, at least a number of years, two, three, four years would be great. If I could get that out of them, I'd be happy. Now, question seven is kind of a follow-up to question six. And I said, Basically, what about beyond five years? What are your long-term goals as an audio person or what are your long-term goals in the studio world? This is a tricky question. Uh, It's almost like asking them, what do you plan to do after you quit this job? (laughs) Because like, ultimately their answer is some insight into their personal goals and it will give you some sort of measure into how long they plan to be at the job. You know, if they say something like working for myself at my own studio, then they might view the assistant job as a stepping stone for them. And while maybe that's not a problem for you, maybe it is. For me, it kind of is. Like, I don't really plan on slowing down at all. In fact, I plan on growing and expanding my business a lot over the next five or 10 years. And ideally, I want somebody around who's interested in sticking with me on that journey. I know that's a big ask for somebody I barely know, but I'm just saying, like, if somebody's answer seems to indicate that they're really just doing this as a stepping stone to advance their own career, their own goal of opening a studio, recording other people, you may want to reconsider. But if they say something more along the lines of, I just want to be working in music however I can, I want to be working in the studio, I just want to be around it as much as possible, I want to learn, I want to get better. Those are my goals. I know it's a little more general, and I know I keep going back and forth on some of these between specific and general, but, um, you know, you might have somebody who's a little bit more open to adapting and changing and growing with you. If they're saying, like, I don't necessarily have any hard goals long term, but I just want to be around it. I want to do music full time. I want to blah, blah, blah. So again, it kind of gives you some insight into their intentions and their goals and how long they might stick around. Question eight was sort of a little quick mini practical test. I asked them, uh, I want to challenge you to look around the room. And again, these were all in person. These interviews were in person. So I want to challenge you to look around the room and tell me what you think needs to be taken care of. What things do you think bother me that I need done right now? Just what do you see? If this was your studio or if you worked here, what would you be compelled to fix or change or do right now? So it's kind of a weird open-ended question, but I asked all the candidates this question to see if they would notice the things that needed to be done in the control room, what types of things they were already looking out for. For what it's worth, I noted 10 things that I wanted to be done. The top three finalists noticed three things, four things, and five things in that order. So it says a lot when you can quickly assess a room and notice things like, hey, uh, those cables need to be put up. That box needs to be thrown away. The drill needs to be put away that's over there on the desk. Uh, The rug has some dirt on it. Probably should be vacuumed. That light bulb is out within 30 seconds or a minute. You know, Um, again, I'm looking for somebody with good character who would treat the studio as if it's their own, right? Like look for things that need to be done. Look for things that are maybe a little obscure, but important details. One thing that nobody got is that uh, one of my Furman rack power conditioners has a light bulb out. Nobody noticed that. Um, But, you know, 
it is what it is. <laughs> Most people got three or four or five things, but um, yeah, there were actually 10. So I was very curious to see how many things people would notice. Um, I didn't want to have to hold their hand and lead them to what it was. I just wanted to see what they would notice. And as an assistant, I don't want to do that either. I don't want uh, to hold their hand and tell them every little thing they need to do. I want them to look around and say, oh, there's a piece of trash. Or, oh, look, this uh, corner of the room is dusty. I need to vacuum it. Or, oh, look, there's a bundle of cables over here. Can I put these away? Can I hang them on a hook somewhere? What can I do to make this place cleaner and more efficient and keep things moving, right? I want to see what they see. Question nine is sort of a three-part question. Uh, and it's, uh, are you comfortable with Mac and PC? Uh, same question about Android and iOS. And what DAWs are you most familiar with? So this is basically as simple and practical as it sounds. Uh, nothing fancy. I'm really just trying to get an idea of what their specific operating system and DAW experience is. Because I use Nuendo and... Very few people seem to use Nuendo. I mean, tons of people use Cubase, but Nuendo's kind of obscure in the grand scheme. Um, it kind of puts everyone on a level playing field because almost nobody uses it, in at least not in my area. Um, but if somebody knows Pro Tools and Logic, which I also have, that's good. I want them to know those things because some clients do request it. If they only know Mac and not PC, that's kind of a red flag for me because I'm a PC guy. Now, I do have a Mac as well. You know, it's kind of a boring question, but it's just interesting to see. Uh, all three all three candidates to the top three had experience in a lot of different DAWs and both Mac and PC, so that's good. And question 10, I asked them, like I said on the email, to prepare three to five questions for me for this interview, either about me, the job, the studio, anything really, um, since we'd be working closely together, I want to make sure that they feel good about the position, that they understand the types of things that they would need to do, that they understand kind of a bit about who I am. You know, this is a good chance for them to breathe a little easy and forget about their answers for a minute and try to get to know me. After being drilled with nine questions for the past hour, I thought it would be a good thing to flip sides and let them ask me questions, right? This is twofold because first it gives me some indication if they actually thought of some good questions. Cause again, I did give it ahead of time. And if otherwise, did they just like phone it in and say like, how long have you been doing this? Like, that's not a good question. Uh, why? Because first of all, it's on my website. Um, <laughs> secondly, it doesn't really take any time to think about, right? Like you're telling me you don't have any questions about this job about the studio or my expectations for you, any of my weird habits or preferences, or like you have no interesting questions whatsoever, right? Like I want to make sure that people are showing curiosity and genuine interest in me or in the studio, in the clients I've worked with, my process, my philosophy on record making, whatever it is, not because I really need them to like adore me or whatever, <laughs> I want them to get to know who they'll be working with for 10 hours a day in a confined space. <laughs> and I'm very curious the types of questions that they have for me. Are they good questions? Are they annoying questions? That might give me some insight into the type of questions that they would ask me on the job. Um, maybe not, but in general, I got pretty great questions from all the candidates. So after the interviews were over, I 
went back to my scale system where I had all the points, you know, and I used a scale of five points per question. So that's 50 points total to gauge the interviews. If they answered really well, they'd get a four or five. If they answered poorly, they'd get a one or two, you know. If the answer was kind of like the bare minimum and just they answered it, but it wasn't anything spectacular, they'd get a three. Now, all of this being said, I have to admit, all three interviews went well, and the scores were all very close at the end. It was really great getting to meet everybody in person, and frankly, any one of them could have done this job and I would have been happy with it. That's what made the decision so difficult. I actually didn't expect it to be that close. Um, there was one applicant who ultimately just stood out just slightly above the rest, especially when combining the interview score with the scores up to this point. Uh, this particular candidate seemed to have great character, good experience, good problem-solving skills, but very humble, uh, very chill, not kind of like overly confident, like I said, it can kind of be a little bit off-putting, but also not meek or self-deprecating or anything like that. It was a nice mixture of, I'm really excited about this, I am confident, but I'm also ready to help you however you need and learn what you need me to learn. You know, I'll be totally honest, uh, this person was actually slightly less experienced than my second pick. But again, on the advice of many entrepreneurs, colleagues, friends, I ultimately chose a candidate that I just felt a little more comfortable around, a little more natural connection, a little more like, yeah, I could be in this, I could be in this room with this person for 10, 20, 30 hours a week, you know? Um, again, I, I can train them on technical skills all day long, but I can't really change a person's personality, their vibe, their humor, or if I like feel comfortable around them or if they feel comfortable around me. Uh, that's something that can take a long time to develop. But again, even still, I, I would have hired any of them, the top three. It was really, it was a tough call. It really was. Now, I have a friend who is a professional executive assistant by trade, and uh, she calls this the beer test. She asked me, you know, out of your top three, who would you go have a beer with? I'm not saying they've got to be your best friend or, you know, the chummiest or the smartest or the funniest or even the most interesting, but what she means is who, after meeting all three, do you feel like you just naturally got along with the best? And as long as that person is capable of doing the job or at least of learning the job quickly, you should go with them. Because, you know, she told me that working with an assistant is kind of like dating somebody. You can't always explain why you connect with a person or a certain assistant or whatever. You just do sometimes. Conversation flows naturally. You laugh at the same things, you listen to each other, you're interested in each other, you ask each other good questions. You know, it's a little odd. Sometimes it's inexplicable, but you can kind of know when it happens. And I thought that was good advice. So like I said, at the end of the day, all three candidates were capable of doing the job. The one I picked passed the beer test. And as a plus, he was the most available time-wise by just a slight margin. So if the schedule needed to change either from one day a week to two or from like Monday, Friday to Monday, Wednesday, Friday or Monday, Thursday, Friday. My top pick actually had probably the most flexible schedule of the others. So even though, like I said, maybe not as much experience as my second pick, but really flexible in schedule, really hungry to learn, very cool to hang out with, pass the beer test, all the above, you know? One very important thing to note, 
I made sure to tell my second and third pick, uh, you know, the ones that got rejected, that they were absolutely going to be my first calls should my number one pick not work out. Because, you know, anything can happen. Maybe six months from now, they will realize they don't like the job. Maybe a few months from now, they'll win the lottery and retire in Jamaica. You know, <laughs> like maybe they won't like the job or maybe we won't get along. I don't know. You know, it's it's very new in the process. Um, so I really meant it when I said it. Like they really would be my first calls because I don't want to have to redo the interview process all over again when I've already interviewed them. They're totally capable of doing the job. And I would recommend that to any of you that are considering hiring an assistant. Even though the process can be difficult and difficult to decide and can be emotional, it's really important to not burn any bridges with these applicants, especially not in like the top five or whatever, because eventually they might end up being your second choice or, you know, they might even be a second hire. Maybe one day you decide you need two people. Right. Like uh, maybe they'll be around as a client or maybe they'll refer you to one of their friends. It does you no good to be like cold and heartless and mean with people who just gave you their time and energy to try to demonstrate why they should work for you. Right. Like deflate your ego a little bit and realize that they're human beings just like you. Burning bridges in this case helps nobody. Right. Always be kind, cordial, professional to your job applicants. I even gave my number two and number three picks a reverb gift card as like a token of appreciation for the time that they have put into this. Like they answered a bunch of questions on email. They took time out of their day to come interview at the studio. You know, it, it takes a lot of guts to put yourself out there for a job. And, you know, whether you're qualified or not, it's still it's a lot of work and people prepare for it. And nobody likes rejection. Right. A lot of people are too afraid of rejection to even try. So the very fact that they spent the time to follow directions, answer questions, help me, someone they barely know, try to find a job candidate, that says something about their character right there, right? Think about it like that, right? So don't burn bridges with your, you know, number two, number three, number four pick. You might end up hiring them. Maybe number one won't work, or maybe you'll hire additional assistants. You just don't know. So that was the entire saga of how I hired my assistant. I know many of you might be wondering, so what specifically does your assistant do? If they're not doing like super intense audio work, uh, what the heck are they doing, right? Actually, quite a lot. Um, as I said earlier, my assistant is working two days a week right now, and uh, that works out to about 20 hours, something like that. And I hope to expand that to three days a week. So if you imagine a Venn diagram, you know, overlapping circles, right? This job is kind of a marriage of three jobs, really. One circle is studio assistant, another is assistant engineer, and the third is personal assistant. And these jobs overlap in some interesting ways. So let me explain kind of what's in each category. Under the studio assistant umbrella, this person is primarily responsible for taking care of the studio itself. So that means keeping it clean, keeping it stocked with water, coffee, drinks, uh, paper towels, trash bags, but also drum heads and guitar strings, knowing what guitar strings I keep around for which guitars, making sure the bathroom is clean and that it's got soap and towels and toilet paper, right? Making sure that clients are greeted when they show up and helping them load in. 
studio assistant is also responsible for some light maintenance of the gear itself, like making sure that while we do have guitar strings, we actually put those strings on the guitars <laughs> and that they're set up, making sure that, you know, if there are drums that have really old drum heads, they need to be replaced, making sure that the guitars have a strap, making sure that the tuners and the direct boxes have batteries, making sure that the cables work, right? Testing the cables, making sure we don't have any bad cables, making sure that the headphones work, just like basic checks and balances, making sure that stuff has adapters, that we don't have any broken stuff. And if we do, making note of it. And if you can fix it, great. If you can't, we'll, you know, do it later, but make a note of it. Honestly, the biggest part of this portion, the studio assistant portion, is just keeping the studio well-maintained. That's something that needs to be done regularly. You know, a clean studio is a happy studio. In the second circle of the Venn diagram is assistant engineer. The assistant engineer side of this job has a little bit more to do with like setting up and tearing down microphones. Now, it doesn't take a lot of like serious skill to do this, but it does take patience, uh, care, and a good memory of how I want things done, right? Like every microphone has a place where it is stored and it needs to be stored the correct way. And if I need drum mics set up, for example, there are definitely like go-to starting places and mics that they will need to come in and set up and I will come in and tweak as needed. They'll have to memorize my whole patch list and where the channels go and where everything is patched on the patch bay. They need to know where to keep cables, what types of cables go where, and, you know, how to keep them looking nice and clean and tidy when in use. There are also times when I'll need my assistant to record for me. So, for example, I do a lot of records where I am kind of playing a lot of stuff. So maybe I'm playing acoustic guitar, electric guitar, mandolin, and organ. And sometimes I need to be out in the live room. And this can be kind of a pain to <laughs> do by yourself. You know, you can do like the whole like hit record and run into the other room or you can show the client a couple key commands. But it just doesn't look as professional to have them do that sort of thing. Um, I really prefer not to have to do that. You know, it can just be a pain. So it's easier to just have somebody else running the computer so I can make takes, do punch ins, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there's also a need for sessions to be created, for templates to be made, for settings to be recalled. So if I'm working uh, with a band on an album, that's one of the very first things we do is create sessions for 10 songs. This is a lot of repetition, but it's simple, basic work. It just takes time, right? You create a session, you name and label and color code everything, you organize it, you make a basic effects template, you save the entire thing as a template, and then you create nine more just like that organized into their own folders. Again, it's easy work. It's stuff we do all the time, but it can take like 20, 30 minutes, right? I could be setting up drum mics, or I could be having a discussion with the band, or we could just be drinking coffee, and that stuff is getting done in the background. Again, that's like 30 minutes right there. That doesn't even count like how much time it would save me if we did that and then set up drum mics together. That would save me another 30 minutes uh, doing it all in series, like I said. Another important thing that the assistant engineer does is document the session. Okay, that means taking pictures of the mic setups, the preamps, EQs, compressors, what instruments were used. It doesn't have to be like fancy photography or anything, but I really, that's something that was in my list of things that I didn't really have time to do and I really want to do. I just want to get in the habit of it because it's very easily forgotten what we did to get a certain sound. Sometimes people will even bring it up and say like, hey, I really like that guitar sound that you did on, on this record. What was that? And I don't always remember. 
Um, sometimes I will, but, or, or even like what snare did you use? What, uh, what kick did you use? What symbols? And unless I have pictures, there's a good chance I don't remember, you know? Um, I want to be able to give people honest answers and I want to be able to know myself with all those detailed information. So that's something really important part of the like assistant engineer side of it. You know, every little bit of time saved is worth it to me. Like so much of this requires uh, you to think about things that you're doing in series and then instead think about what could be done in parallel. So these tasks are really important. As you can imagine, the studio assistant and assistant engineer part of the job are, that's the bulk of the job, like 70, 80%. Right now, there are some tasks that I might consider to be a little more of like personal assistant type tasks, maybe, maybe a little bit more in like studio manager world. For example, answering the phone, responding to emails, keeping my my email inbox clean, uh, unsubscribing from stuff that I get all the time, uh, responding to social media messages and comments like Facebook messages, Instagram messages, scheduling people. Um, running small errands, you know, picking up things. Like, again, that's something I can't really do during the day. Like, if I need to go to the bank on the day of a session, when am I supposed to do that, right? Like, I have to just go to the ATM in the middle of the night. So that takes away time from hanging out with my wife because I have to go uh, in the, like, 9 o'clock at night, go to the bank ATM to deposit a check. You know what I mean? It's like I would be better to just go during business hours. It would get in sooner. Um so like little errands like that, like a lot of places close by the time I am closed, right? So I can't do any of that. Um, unboxing and mailing packages, uh, reminding me about things coming up on my calendar, uh, helping me make to-do lists and staying on top of the to-do list, um, doing research on various things and getting back to me. Like, for example, uh, can you research this podcast analytics service and see if it's even worth it? Are there any good reviews? Are there other services out there with better reviews? What are they? Right? Like there are certain things that I want to research, but I just don't really have a lot of time to research them or I'm just busy doing other things. And it's like, hey, I will pay you to to research this stuff and give me the bullet points so that I don't have to spend weeks and weeks like researching this stuff on my own. Uh, and lastly, and this is actually a pretty important one for the personal assistant category, process creation. So this is like kind of the overarching project for the assistant job over the course of the next year, two years, whatever. Since this is my first uh, consistent employee, part of their job is going to be basically documenting what they do for me. So essentially, everything that I've listed above is going to be documented and put in sort of a file of some kind with all the specifics, the details, and instructions so that in the future, a new assistant basically has a handbook for the job, right? So for example, I need an Excel spreadsheet with all of the guitars that I have, what strings and string gauges they use. You know what I mean? Like any details about their setup or specifics like that, different snare drums with different drum heads, all that stuff. Like that stuff needs to be documented because one day I might have a different assistant and I need that stuff to be made. I don't have time to make it all myself. Now, a lot of that stuff I, I actually do have already, but quite a bit of it needs to be refined or updated or a lot of clarifications need to be made. You know, it needs to be written down somewhere though. 
So this job is a combination of a lot of individual tasks, none of which are particularly difficult, but they do take time. They do take some skill. And over time, this list can be expanded. So for all of you that were thinking, what would I have an assistant do? Well, I just gave you a huge list of all the things that my assistant will do. Now, these things on their own may only take 5, 10, 20 or 30 minutes each. But again, when you add them up, it can be hours and hours every single week that you are saving. And these are just the things that they're doing regularly, you know, like during an actual session with clients, there are even more specific potential tasks for them to do. Helping the clients with setup, going to get lunch for the clients, uh, following them and tagging them on social media posts. Because like I try to stay off my phone during sessions, but it's also really helpful to cross promote, right? Like you tag the artist and they tag you and posts. I mean, I don't have time to do that. An assistant could very easily handle all that in the background. Take a cool photo, put it on Instagram, boom, you're done. You know, there's there's at least a dozen other things that need to be done while clients are in the room. What if the client says specifically like, hey, uh, can you go get us some drinks or whatever from this place? Or can you go to this liquor store and get us some beer or some wine? Oh, can you go get us some coffees? I mean, there are tons of things that could happen, right? As time goes on, my hope is that I will give my assistant more responsibility, hire them three days a week. Uh, maybe eventually full-time. It really depends. Again, the goal here is to buy back your time. I'm not necessarily trying to get a clone or train someone to be me. I just need an extra set of hands because almost everything goes faster when you can do things in parallel and split the work in two. I'm trying to delegate these tasks to someone else so I can put my brain power and energy into being a great engineer, mixer, producer. I don't want to have the distractions of like studio owner stuff and like building maintenance person, <laughs> you know, like I don't want to have those distractions nagging at me saying like, uh, I need to answer that email later tonight. I need to clean up that thing. I need to order guitar strings. I need to, uh, you know, we need to take a break so the band can get lunch. I need to do this. I need to tag them on social media. I don't have to do any of that. Right. That can all be delegated to someone else now. And hopefully my life gets easier, less stressful. The client gets a better experience. I'm buying back my time. It's really a win-win. So to cap this episode off, I thought I would give you my 20 golden rules for being a studio assistant. Uh, this is the same list that I actually gave my assistant <laughs> after hiring them. Uh, so I think they're solid pieces of advice for anybody working in a studio assistant or intern type position. So here, here they are, the golden rules for being an assistant. Number one, always be on time, even if I'm not, even if the client's not. Okay, that one is really important to me because I want to make sure that uh, this adds some like stability and consistency to my job. And that's one of the reasons that um, I struggle with some of this stuff is that I'm not great at waking up early in the morning and coming here and cleaning up the studio and taking out the trash and doing this stuff. A lot of times, I'm, I mean, I'm just not a morning person. So I'll come out here and I'll see, oh man, it's messy. Uh, I don't really have time to clean that up right now. Uh, the client's coming in an hour. I've got to answer emails. Like there's so many other things I have to do that it's overwhelming. And I'm also tired and groggy and not a morning person. So if I have somebody here on time, every time, 
they show up, they start cleaning up things, making sure everything's ready to go, making sure that, you know, stuff is out of the way so clients can load in, making sure we got water and coffee and the trash is taken out. I mean, that's peace of mind for me. Number two, always back me up, even when you think I'm wrong. This is a really important one for assistants to, to, to know. Um, one of the worst things you can do is if a client asks you, well, what do you think? One of the stupidest things you can do is disagree with your boss, right? I know that it seems like kind of a business cliche. I'm not trying to make people lie or, you know, not be true to themselves. But again, it's like I hired you to be my assistant, to assist me. That is literally the job. And not backing me up, not inspiring trust with my own client, that's not assisting me. So always back me up. Number three, always be listening and paying attention. That one seems pretty self-explanatory. Number four, when in doubt, just be quiet. This is a really tough one for a lot of audio people to learn because, you know, we're so used to listening. We get it, blah, blah, blah. But when you're in that world, there's a culture. It's fun. It's cool. It's enjoyable. But there are situations that you can very easily step on some toes, offend people. And if you're not really familiar, if you don't really feel confident and you're trying to kind of like awkwardly fit in with the band or with the producer or whoever, don't. Don't do that. Like when in doubt, just smile, be quiet and listen that you, you don't want to overstep a boundary because you can get fired and people will remember that. You know what I mean? So when in doubt, just, you know, be a fly on the wall and speak when you need to speak and don't speak when you don't need to speak. <laughs> Number five, look for existing problems and try to fix them. Number six, look for potential problems and try to prevent them. Okay, these two are related. It's one of the biggest parts of the job. I want my assistant to be my eyes and ears. When I'm focusing on the job, they're looking around the studio and they're thinking, uh-oh, we're out of coffee or we're out of water or the bathroom has no toilet paper. I need to go get some, right? Or, uh-oh, we only have one roll of toilet paper. I need to go get some. You know what I mean? Like they're looking ahead. They're not just saying, oh, we have it. It's fine. Um, I, I need someone who's got my back, who's got the studio's back, you know? Number seven. I'm your boss, but so is the client. This is something that's also like an ego thing that people need to get over. If the client is going to ask my assistant to make them coffee, that's just part of the job. Okay. It's some people might look at that as like demeaning or whatever. It's like, but that's what they're here for. They're here to assist me and the client. So it's really important to remember that. Like you are here to help me, but also you're here to help the client. Number eight, an efficient session is a happy session. I'm always looking for ways to improve the efficiency of my uh, session. So if it saves me time, then I'm pretty much interested, you know? <laughs> so if you have an idea that's uh, something that could save me time while not compromising quality, let me know. Now, maybe not in public, like around the client, but I want, again, I want a, a, an assistant to be my eyes and ears, to be looking for things and see things in a new way that maybe I don't. And in a related one, uh, number nine, a clean studio is a happy studio. I've already said this in this episode, but it's true. When you walk in and the studio is clean on Monday morning, it feels great, right? It feels really good. You don't want your studio to get out of hand. There's a lot of things that can get dusty and dirty and a lot of, you know, guitar strings that can get grimy and floors that can get dusty. There's tons of stuff in a studio and if you keep it clean, it's just a better work environment. It just feels better to work in. Number 10, our mood determines the client's mood. That's a really important one that is hard to just say 
but it's really important for them to learn it on the job as well, is that if we're in a good mood, the client will be in a good mood. And if we're in a weird mood, the client will probably be in a weird mood. And so my assistant is kind of like my first line of defense there because they will probably be the person to greet a lot of clients. Um, and I need somebody who's got a good smile, who's positive, who uh, is going to make the client feel welcome. I, I mean, it seems simple, but it's true. Number 11, try not to make the same mistake twice, okay? Obviously, we're all human beings. I realize we're all going to make mistakes, but I really want an assistant to, you know, if and when they make mistakes, because everybody's going to make mistakes, they really try to learn from it. I don't like explaining things 10 times to somebody like, I've already told you, don't do that or don't do it this way or whatever. Like that drives me crazy. And it makes me feel like a bad guy for, for having to explain it again and again and again. It's like, I don't want to have to explain this. You know what I mean? Like if you make a mistake, it's fine. Just try not to make it again and certainly try not to make it a third time. Number 12, use common sense first, ask me second, right? I don't want to be holding the hand of my assistant all the time. I don't want to have to tell them, uh, well, the guitar strings on that guitar snapped off. You probably should put on new ones. Or uh, the drummer broke through that snare head, maybe put on a new one. You know what I mean? Like there are some common sense things that most people should be able to glean from looking at a situation. If we're out of water, the client probably needs to drink water. So somebody needs to go get it and I am working with the client right now. So that should be you, <laughs> right? Like, it's like very simple logic. Like you would think that most people would be like, oh, what am I doing right now? Nothing. I can go get water because we're out of water. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's very basic, but it's just really important. Use common sense first and ask me second. Number 13, and this is a really important one. Never get involved in a conflict during the session ever. Okay. I have seen it happen. I have been in sessions where it has happened, where people will get in an argument and somebody else chimes in. Never. Okay. Now there are times when I get into arguments. It's very rare, but there are times when I'll get into an argument with somebody uh, or band members will get into an argument. That's more common that they'll get into an argument with each other. Um, even I try to not get involved unless I need to, but I'm being that it's kind of like I'm producing most of the time and I'm, you know, in charge, quote, quote, I do kind of have to get involved because I'm trying to find solutions. Right. But as an assistant, that is not your fight. Right. We don't need another person involved. So when in doubt, they just stay out of the conflict. Right. And if they're confused, if they really kind of can't avoid it, always go back to number two. Rule number two, which says always back me up, <laughs> right? Number 14, leave your ego at the door. This is kind of a thankless job a lot of times. You know, we do a lot of work and a lot of stuff, and sometimes it doesn't feel like we're appreciated. And that's something that you kind of just have to get used to. Ultimately, this is a service business, and it's not really about us, right? It's all about the music. It's about the artist. It's, it's their product. They are paying me to work on their art, right? Like, while I do also consider it in a way my art or my, you know what I mean? It's just not the same. Um, it's really more about them. Number 15, you represent the studio at all times. So that means whether you're here at the studio or you're out at a restaurant or you're out at a show, if you work for me and people know you work for me, 
then you represent me. So if you're talking bad about me, you're probably going to get fired. <laughs> it's like, it's not about like, I mean, I can take it if somebody dishes out some hurtful words about me or the studio or whatever, but it's like, man, if you talk bad about your boss in public or whatever, or if you're being a bad person and people start noticing and it gets back to me and it's like, man, you represent me in this studio. Like you've got to be on the ball. Like you've got to be a good person. That's why I hired you. I need someone of high character. And just like if I go out, if I go out to a show and punch somebody in the face, that could hurt my business, <laughs> right? It's the same It's the same thing. It's like if you work for a company, especially a small business, that can reflect back on me. Number 16, never interfere with the client's process, okay? Every client is a little bit different, so you can't expect every single session to be the same because they're not. It's more important that you're just aware of that and you look and you're paying attention and you're watching for what the client's process is and you make sure that you try to only make it better. Don't interfere or try to change it into something it's not. We're trying to accommodate the music making process and make it make what we're doing as transparent as possible so that they can do what they do. Number 17, have faith in my choices because you're one of them. Okay, this actually uh, comes from my dad, but uh, this is a great little piece of advice for any assistant. It's like some people will harbor like weird, like, oh, my boss doesn't know what he's doing or he's, he did this. That was weird or blah, blah, blah. Don't don't let that sort of thing fester. Like have faith in me. Right. Like I'm a smart person. I make good choices. Not all the time, of course, but in general, I make good choices. And an example of that is I hired you. Right. So like if you think you're so correct and your boss is so wrong, it's like they have good judgment, you know, like they hired you. So if you you know what I mean? It's like, again, it kind of goes back to the leave your leave your ego at the door thing. It's like, don't be so quick to judge, you know, like let it happen. See what happens. You might end up learning something from it. Right. Have faith in my choices. Number 18, treat the studio as if it's your own. That's really important. You know, it's like the golden rule applied to the studio. I want my assistant to look around and treat this place with care and respect. This is my entire livelihood. Like this is my passion. It's all I've been doing for the last 15 years. It needs to be respected like that, right? It needs to be treated with that amount of care and respect. Number 19, document everything you learn. This is something that's really important. I, I think assistants should make it a good habit to take notes and learn and grow and always be learning, which leads me to number 20, never stop learning. So I know this was a ton of information, but I really wanted to give you the entire saga and try to give you some tips along the way to try to explain where my head was at in the whole process. I hope this podcast has been helpful for you. I hope you've learned a lot. I hope it's given you some things to consider when hiring your first assistant or intern. Or maybe if you're in the process of looking to become an assistant or an intern, maybe it would give you some things to think about that people like me, studio owners, producers, are looking for, okay? Now, if you've been doing audio for a while and you're kind of on the fence and you're thinking, do I really need to hire someone, you know? If you're on the fence, I highly recommend it. You know, it hasn't been that long already and I can already see this is going to save me a lot of time. <laughs> I have less stress, more time, and I'm hoping that the studio will be more efficient, cleaner, 
easier than ever, <laughs> right? Um, I can rest a lot easier knowing that every single week things will be checked, things will be assessed, things will be fixed, they'll be clean, not delayed, not ignored or stalled. Things can always be moving forward, and that's a really great thing. I'm super excited. I'm probably going to end up doing a follow-up episode maybe six months from now, maybe a year from now, because this is this is all new. Like I said, I've only had this person hired for the last month, so it's all very new. But yeah, I'll do a follow-up episode and we'll see. As always, if you have questions, comments, send me an email, recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to check out our website, recordingloungepodcast.com. And again, go to recordingloungepodcast.com slash sign up to sign up for the mailing list to be entered to win the Truman Audio SM7B and use coupon code RLCHRISTMAS to get 15% off from now until the first, which is two days from now. So you don't have much time. So go over to the website, buy some stuff, get 15% off your order. Special shout out and thanks to all of my Patreon supporters. It's one of the best ways to support this podcast and help me offset the costs of doing the show, of typing out all of my outlines and recording the show and editing the show. And then, of course, hosting the show online so that it's you know available for everyone. I can definitively say that Patreon is the reason why this podcast is still going. So thank you, really, from the bottom of my heart for being a Patreon supporter. If you're interested in doing that, please check out patreon.com slash recording lounge. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll also get access to our special quick tip episodes that are available to Patreon supporters, and you can get some extra recording lounge content that nobody else gets. So make sure to check that out. As always, thanks for listening. I appreciate all of you. I'll talk to you next time.